to participate in a parent-child dedication. I'm sorry. Thank you so much, worship team. And so I want to invite uh, the Sanborns up with little Seth. Here he comes. Invite my wife as well. This way, Mark. All right. How's it going, dude? A little kid just smiled at me. (laughs) It's a miracle. Good deal. Let me, uh, I want to give these to you before we begin. So, Mama, give you a little certificate. And then, of course, as our tradition is at Christ Fellowship, uh, a personal letter I've written to Seth that is to be open on his 13th birthday. And um, I've actually developed an app that uh, for parents that if you open that before Seth turns 13, this alarm goes off. (laughs) And there's no way to shut it off until I get you to come over to the office. And so... It's really pretty cool. So Seth is, is blessed to have a, a mama and a, and a dad who love the Lord Jesus Christ with all their hearts. They're plugged in here at Christ Fellowship, and we appreciate and love them so much. I have a, a fourfold charge that I want to give to mom and dad, and then my wife has a, a verse she'd like to read. Uh, charge number one is I uh, would encourage you to teach the scriptures to this little boy, to raise him up in the fear and the admonition of the Lord. Proverbs says, train up a child on the way he, way he should go, and when he is old, he will not depart from it. The second thing I want to charge you to do is to, to showcase the gospel for Seth through your marriage. Uh, CJ, the way that you treat your wife will be a, a lifelong legacy that Seth will never forget. And Megan, the way you respond to CJ's leadership will also be a legacy that that both of your kids will will always remember. Number three, uh, tell Seth often about the gospel. You know, the gospel is not something you say once and put it on the shelf, but you tell your children the gospel day after day after day at dinner time and when you're hiking and when you're at the grocery store and, and even when you discipline, you share the gospel. And man, he is giving me the stare down. I won. Okay, number four. Bring, bring Seth to church every week. Bring him to church so he can hear the word of God, so he can be in the household of faith where he can be nurtured around the word of God. It's our prayer that as you teach the word of God to this little one and model what God's centeredness looks like, that the lordship of Jesus Christ would captivate his heart and change his his life forever. And of course, when we pray, we'll pray that God would draw him to the Savior early in his life. Jereen has a verse you'd like to share for mom and dad. Well, first of all, CJ and Megan, you guys are special to us, and we just we love you and so thankful that you're a part of this congregation, and it has been wonderful to watch these two become parents, let me tell you. So we're excited for that, and the verse that Dave and I picked for you guys is in Proverbs 3, on verse 5, 6, and 7, which says, Trust in the Lord with all your heart, and do not lean on your own understanding. In all your ways, acknowledge him, and he will make straight your paths. Be not wise in your own eyes. Fear the Lord and turn away from evil. And that is, as we usually do when we do parent-child dedications, I like to look up and do a little research on names. And I got to tell you, man, I I had a lot of fun with this one. So Seth, as we all know, was Adam and Eve's third son. CJ, tell tell the congregation how old you are. I'd never ask a woman that, but how old are you? Uh, Today I'm 29. Tomorrow I'll be 30. Tomorrow is CJ's birthday. So happy birthday, CJ. But you know what's interesting about that? When Seth was born to Adam and Eve, 
You don't have anything on Adam. He was 130 years old. I thought, wow, that's, that's pretty cool. The name Seth comes from a Hebrew name that means anointed. And so people in the Bible are often anointed in recognition of the Lord's divine calling on their lives. When God has something special in the life of someone in the Old Testament, he would anoint them. And so the scriptures that we have selected uh, comes from the book of First Samuel. That was a sweet transition. I, it's like no one even saw it. They're like, what's the verse he selected? <laughs> 1 Samuel chapter 16, and this is for you, Seth. The verse describes the anointing of David. It says, and he, he sent and brought him in, and now he was ruddy and had beautiful eyes and was handsome. And the Lord said, arise, anoint him, for this is he. Then Samuel took the horn of oil, and he anointed him in the midst of his brothers. And this is the part that really grabbed my heart. And the Spirit of the Lord rushed upon David. From that day forward. Shall we have a word of prayer for this little one? How's it going there, dude? He's like, that is the biggest nose I've ever seen in my life. <laughs> All right, let's, let's pray. Oh, Father, thank you for, for CJ and for Megan and Mark. And we thank you today, especially for Seth. Thank you for bringing him safely into this world. I thank you that he's growing strong and healthy. And Lord, we commit him to you collectively as the body of Christ. We pray for CJ and Megan, that they would raise him in the fear and the admonition of the Lord, that they would share the gospel with him. They would live the gospel before him. And Lord God, most of all, we pray that you would draw this little one to yourself early in his life, that he would know the glory of salvation, that he would walk with Jesus and have a desire to please God and obey God and be a disciple of the Lord Jesus. Jesus Christ. We commit him to you now in Jesus name. Amen. The transitions that a pastor goes through in in the ministry, it's it's hard to explain. So yesterday we said goodbye to a dear friend and brother. And today uh, we dedicate this little one to the Lord and his family. And so we're so very grateful for these things. I want to invite you to turn in your Bibles as we begin a a brand new uh, short series to the book of Colossians. Colossians chapter 3. One of the most incredible runners, in my personal opinion, in American history is a woman by the name of Marion Jones. Do you remember Marion Jones? She has kind of gone out of the... The spotlight for the last several years, but she is the winner of three Olympic gold medals and two bronze medals. I remember seeing her run for the first time almost 20 years ago and being absolutely spellbound. This woman is an absolutely phenomenal athlete. Marion Jones was the model of success, perseverance, and courage until in October 2007, she admitted to have taken steroids before the Summer Olympic Games in 2000. Here's what the AP report decided and, and, and read. She pleaded guilty to lying to federal investigators when she originally denied using performance-enhancing drugs and then announced her retirement in a tearful apology outside the U.S. District Court. Close quote. Marion Jones, simply put, and sadly enough, was sidelined from the race. For the race 
had been tainted. Somewhere along the way, this woman decided to embrace the idea that steroids, that performance-enhancing drugs, could bring her more success, more medals, more accolades. She was duped into doping. And what it did is it got her entirely off track. It, It cost this woman a lucrative career. It cost her all of her Olympic medals. And in the final analysis, her actions absolutely stole her personal integrity. Now, when the Apostle Paul wrote his letter to the church in Colossae, what he found was a group of people who were in large measure off track in the Christian life and off track theologically. This is a group of people who were running the Christian race and were like Jones, duped into believing that they could finish the race And that they could achieve spirituality through things like human philosophy, through legalism, through mysticism, and through asceticism. That is, strict discipline to do certain things or abstain from certain things for the purpose of pleasing God. And like Marion Jones, the Colossian believers, their race had become tainted, not with a substance, but with a diabolical theological error. Simply put, instead of focusing on matters that are eternal, the Colossian believers were in large measure focusing on earthly things. And so for you and I, like the Colossian believers, our focus, I believe, needs to be recalibrated. I believe that in the Christian life, it is so very easy to get tripped up by the philosophy of this world, not to mention some of the philosophy that sneaks into the local church. One of those philosophies is what's known as the health and wealth gospel, a diabolical, erroneous theological system that is deceiving millions of people. It is so easy in the Christian life to get sidetracked by legalism, believing with all of our hearts that our efforts, that our obedience will earn us favor in the sight of a holy God. It is easy in the Christian life to get sidetracked, to get injured by a mystical approach to the Christian life where the written revelation of God is set aside and where angel feathers fall in a sanctuary, or where diamonds grow on a pulpit, or where people walk through uh, so-called do these fire walks, and people chant like dogs, and the Word of God is set aside. And if you're wondering where this is coming from, trust me, it is happening in local churches. It is easy in the Christian life to get paralyzed by the, the erroneous idea that the body is evil and the spirit is good. Therefore, the body should be neglected or punished in order to achieve true spirituality. Oh, how easy it is to take our eyes off the cross, to take our eyes off eternal things and focus our attention on the things of the world. In Colossians chapter 2, Paul cautions the believers in Colossae, and he commends them to Christ, who is supreme above all. And then in Colossians chapter 3, where we turn our attention today, his caution turns into counsel as he sets forth the training process or the training principles for running the Christian life. And one of the critical lessons that we learn is that we need, as the Colossians needed to learn, to focus our attention on heaven. 
This morning, as Ken mentioned earlier, we begin a new series that I have entitled Heaven, the Longing of the Human Heart. And our text this morning will reveal the supreme importance of recalibrating our focus from the temporal, from the earthly to the heavenly, to focusing our attention on eternal things. So please, would you join me and stand to your feet as we read Colossians chapter 3, verses 1 to 4. This is the word of the Lord. Paul says, If then you have been raised with Christ... Set the things or seek the things that are above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things that are above, not on things that are on earth. For you have died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. Let's pray together. Father, I am excited as we spend the next several weeks exploring the glory and the beauty and the reality of heaven. Father, by way of introduction, I pray that you would set our hearts aright today, that you would, by the power of your Holy Spirit, that you would recalibrate our hearts, that if there is anyone here who is focusing on temporal things, that something would change, something would be transformed this morning, that we would have uh, the desire to be in heaven, that we would have a desire to be with the saints, to be uh, celebrating for all eternity. Lord, we thank you that our most recent member in Anton Nyans, that he is in heaven now. That because of personal faith in Christ, he is enjoying the glories of heaven. And so we commit his family to you now as they grieve. We pray that your peace would rest upon them during these difficult days. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. The title of the message this morning is Recalibrating Our Heavenly Focus. If you're truly honest, if you're truly honest, can you admit that you tend to get very now-centered? If you're really honest, would you, would you admit to your spouse or to your children or young people to your moms and your dads that you tend to get focused on the here and now? What are the roadblocks that prevent you from, from longing for your heavenly home? I was reminded about my propensity to focus on things of this earth. It happened, oh boy, it must have been at least 15 years ago because my daughter was only four or five years of age and we were outside and doing some yard work, my favorite thing, rah, rah. And uh, we had some weed killer and I was, I was spraying these weeds and I said to Abby, who was four or five at the time, I said, now, honey, be careful. I said, if you end up swallowing any of this, I'm, I'm very realistic with my parenting, right? You'll die. And with out even batting an eye. She said she was standing like this, kind of non-expressionless, and she went, oh, well, that would be good. i go to heaven. And I thought, wow, from, from the mouth of a child, she was focused on eternal realities. Exactly what now is involved in recalibrating our gaze which ought to be heavenward. There are three thoughts that I have for you, three headings, if you will. And I want to challenge you with these. The first is found in verse 1. And that is this, that we must reaffirm the reality. 
If we are to have recalibrated hearts, we must reaffirm the reality. And the reality is set forth in verse 1. Paul says, if then you have been raised with Christ, seek things that are above. Simply put, we have been raised with Christ. I want to say that again. Let it sink in. We have, if you are a Christian, if you are a Christian, you have been raised with Christ. And something interesting happens in the Greek text in verse 1. Verse 1 is what's called a a first-class conditional sentence. You don't need to remember that. But what you do need to remember is that when you see a first-class conditional sentence, here is the way you ought to read it. Since you have been raised with Christ, I would say it like this. There there are no ifs, ands, or buts about it. If you are a Christian, you have been raised with Christ. Sinclair Ferguson says that failure to deal with the presence of sin can often be traced back to spiritual amnesia. Forgetting our true, new, real identity. As believers, I am someone who has been delivered from the dominion of sin and who therefore is free and motivated to fight against the remnants of sin in my heart. You must know, Ferguson says, rest in, think through, and act upon your new identity. You are in Christ since you have been raised with Christ. Notice four very important realities associated with this truth. Number one, we have died with Christ. We have died with Christ. Hold your finger in Colossians chapter 3 and turn over with me to the book of Romans. Romans chapter 6. And for whatever reason, Leona, every time I think of Romans, I think of you. Because Leona has been asking me for years, Pastor, when are we going to get to Romans? It's coming. But for now, look at Romans chapter 6, verse 4. Paul says, We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death, in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. Jump forward to verse 6. We know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. And so, first we recognize we have died with Christ, Secondly, we have been buried with Christ in baptism. We read that in verse 4. That is, we are united with Christ. We are no longer under the reign of sin. Have you thought about that? You are no longer under, under the, the reign of sin. You are no longer un, under the dominion of sin. Sin, that, that diabolical master, that, that taskmaster, that monster, no longer dominates our lives. We are no longer enslaved to sin. And since we are no longer under this monstrous reign of sin, we are under an entirely new domain, which is one of the themes of Romans chapter 6. We are under grace. So we have died with Christ. We have been buried with Christ in baptism. Third, we have died to the elemental spirits of the world. Paul says in Colossians chapter 2, verse 20, If with Christ you have died to the elemental spirits of the world, why, as if you were still alive in the world, do you submit to its regulations? 
You see, the world no longer has a hold on us. No longer does it control our thoughts, our desires, our inclinations, our affections. As Christians, please remember, we operate under a totally new set of assumptions. Some of you are saying, but pastor, you don't know me very well. My response would be, turn back to Colossians chapter 3, turn back to Romans chapter 6, and reaffirm the reality, you have been raised with Christ if you are a Christian. Number four, and we restate the obvious that we have been raised with Christ, as Paul says in Colossians 3.1. That phrase, raised with Christ, means this in the Greek. It means to raise together. It means to, to raise from a condition of mortal death to a life that is dedicated in a fresh way to God. In Colossians 2, Paul continues, he says, Having been buried with Christ in baptism, in which you were also raised with him through faith in the powerful working of God, who raised him from the dead. You see, this this principle is found throughout Paul's epistles. In Ephesians 2, 5, and 6, Paul says that even when we were dead, I would add, deader than a doornail. Even when we are dead in our trespasses, that God made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been, help me, saved. And raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. The same power, you see, that the Father used to raise the Son from the dead... Think with me. The same power that God the Father used to raise Jesus from the dead is the same power that is operative in your life. That has special meaning when you get up and go to work tomorrow. That has special meaning for young people who face temptation day after day after day. That has special meaning for the way you interact with other people and you're, you're tempted to go one way when you know you ought to go another. The same power that raised Jesus from the dead is in your life if you are a Christian. And so what are the implications now of being raised with Christ? When you're tempted to sin, remember you have the power to say no. You see, you're not pulling up your bootstraps. You're not doing it on your own. You're not using your own resources. And I would submit to you, if you do, you will fail every single time. But because you have been raised with Christ, when you're faced with temptation, young people, when you're faced with something tempting, you have the ability, if you're a Christian, to say no. I submit, therefore, to God. I resist the devil, and you will flee from me. It was one of my heroes, Martin Lloyd-Jones, they called him the doctor, the great Welsh pastor in London, who said, I died with Christ. I was buried with him. I rose with him. I am in the new realm. It is a new life altogether, as if he has finished with the rule and the reign and the realm of sin completely and absolutely. So have we also. And so we have been raised from death to life. We have been raised with Christ. Our desires have changed. Our delights have changed. What once brought pleasure brings no satisfaction anymore. 
What once was rewarding in our mind now has become rancid. And since we have been raised with Christ, our our inclinations are totally different. Our affections are entirely different. And while we are free from the penalty of sin, while we live in a new realm, while we live with a new power over sin, what we need to remember is that the battle continues to wage. The battle continues all the way until the day we breathe our last. I have shared with many of the men about a, an older gentleman who sat down with a rather young man. And the young man was, was looking at the old man with, with great esteem and great reverence. And he said to this old man, oh, I can't wait for the day to be like you when I don't have to battle temptation anymore. And this old wrinkly man said, listen here, Sonny. I'm still tempted every day just as you are. But he, like the young man, has a Savior who is tempted in all ways as we are, yet without sin. Therefore, we can go to the throne of grace and receive help and mercy in time of need. The next time you're tempted to sin, would you raise your hand? How many of you are tempted to sin this week? All of you. When you're tempted to sin, would you say to yourself, Self, I have been raised with Christ. And since I have been raised with Christ, I have the ability. I have new desires. I have new inclinations. I can say no to sin. The Holy Spirit who dwells within me gives me the the ability to obey God and say no to sin. And so we must reaffirm the reality of who we truly are In Christ. That's the first heading so that you and I might have recalibrated hearts and orient our attention to heaven. Number two, we not only reaffirm the reality of who we are in Christ, but we respond reverently. Look again at Colossians 3.1. If you have been raised with Christ or since you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above where Christ is seated At the right hand of God. When we think about responding reverently, I want to give you the nuts and the bolts of what it means to respond reverently. And if you're if you have a strange way of looking at things, I'll give you the nut and I'll also give you the bolt. That sound okay? So here's the nut. The nut is found in verse one and it says, seek the things that are above. That word seek comes from a Greek word that means to seek by thinking, meditating, reasoning. I love this. It means to to crave or demand someone or something. It involves a a striving after. It involves a a pursuit of God. A.W. Tozer, many, many years ago, before he went to be with the Lord, wrote a book called The Pursuit of God. That's exactly what Paul is calling us to do here. And as I was thinking through what it means to seek the things that are above, an illustration came to my my mind. It's an illustration that many of you can relate to. If you have been to Disneyland, you understand what this Greek word translated seek means. And I'm confident that every child has done it. And if we're really honest, I think every adult does it too. The days leading up to you going to the the Magic Kingdom... You begin to rehearse in your mind what it's going to be like 
You're going to imagine, you're going you're to pull into the magic kingdom, and there are going to be hundreds and hundreds, if not thousands of cars, and you're going to park, and you're going to be with your mom and dad, and you're going to get out of the car, and your dad's going to get on his knee, and he's going to say, now, boys and girls, if you get lost, here's where we're going to meet. And then you're going you're gonna to give the man or the woman your ticket and you're going to walk into the magical kingdom and you're going to begin to look. And you're done looking because you're going to make a beeline to Space Mountain. You're going to go to Space Mountain. You're going to ride the ride. And when you're done with Space Mountain, you're going to make a beeline to find a fast track ticket so you can ride Indiana Jones. And while you wait for Indiana Jones, you go into the Matterhorn. Now, it might be different for all, everyone here, but you get the idea. You're going to play the day out. You're going to go to lunch. You're going to eat that food that no sane person should pay for. $15 for a hamburger? Are you kidding me? But it's okay because your mom and dad are paying for it. And later you're going to get that cotton candy, you know, the $11 stick of cotton candy, and you're going to eat it, and you're going to be happy. And later on, you're going to have to sit through the boring parade. I don't like parades, so I, when I replay it, I'm like, oh, i got to sit through the parade. But after the parade, you're back to Space Mountain, right? What's the point of the illustration? Is we understand what it means to seek. I remember the very first time I went to Disneyland. I was asleep in my cousin's bed in Cupertino, California. And the next day, we were going to get on a plane and fly to L.A. and go to Disneyland. And I slept about this many minutes. I just laid awake and wondered and contemplated and just dreamed what it's going to be like to go to Disneyland for the first time. Now, with the magic kingdom in your mind, you have a better idea of what Paul is urging us to do. That is to seek the things that are above by seeking the eternal kingdom. This is the way the psalmist describes what it means to seek. He says in Psalm 27, 4, One thing I have asked of the Lord that I will seek after, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life to gaze upon the beauty of the Lord and inquire in his temple. Would you hold your finger in Colossians 3 and turn to Psalm chapter 73? I wanted to share these two verses, and these are the two verses that I preached on just yesterday at my friend Anton Nyon's memorial service. And the verses read as follows, verse 25 and 26. Whom have I in heaven but you? That's a rhetorical question. What's the answer, even though you're not supposed to give one? No one. No one. And there is nothing on earth that I desire besides you. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. The point of the message yesterday was that Anton Nyans, from the age of 16 all the way to the time he breathed his last, was that his gaze was focused on his heavenly home. And his gaze was focused intently on his Savior. Here we're told, seek the things that are above in Colossians 3.1. May I tell you that seeking the things of above is a command to be obeyed. As Paul writes in the imperative mood that seeking the things above must also be persistent. As Paul writes in the present tense, seeking things above means cultivating an eternal perspective where the city of God 
overshadows the city of man, cultivating an eternal perspective where the city of God replaces the city of man, where God's values replace earthly values, where God's word replaces the musing of men. The sphere of our seeking is above, where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. There are more examples and much better examples than Disneyland. In Matthew chapter 6, verse 33, Jesus says to do what to his kingdom? Seek first his kingdom and all these things will be added to you. Turn with me to Luke chapter 15. In Luke chapter 15, Jesus tells a story about a woman who is on the hunt. You know this as the parable of the lost coin. And it reads as follows in Luke chapter 15, verse 8. And put on your imaginary thinking caps this morning as we read verse 8. Or what woman having ten silver coins, if she loses one coin, does not light a lamp and sweep the house and seek diligently until she finds it? And when she finds it, she calls together her friends and her neighbors saying, rejoice with me. I have found the coin that I had lost. Just so I tell you, there is joy before the angels of God over one sinner who repents. See, this woman lost one puny little coin. And what did she do? She started overturning furniture. She looked and looked and looked and looked until she found it. And she was so excited. This is intensity in seeking. Yesterday... I think it was yesterday. I've lost track, or maybe it was last week. When was it when I lost my cufflinks during? Doesn't matter. So, guys, imagine when you get your French whatever shirt. I don't know what they're called, but they got the little holies in them. If you lose your cufflinks, you're finished. You look like a grade A dork, right? I'm like, where are my cufflinks? Oh, Drain didn't know where my cuff. So I, I'm, I am this woman in Luke 15, opening drawers, opening drawers, looking all over the place. I mean, looking in the toilet. I'm, I'm everywhere. Where are my cufflinks? I'm going to look like a dork. This is an example of seeking. We are called to seek the things that are above. Flip over to Luke chapter 19. There's another great example of what it means to seek in Zacchaeus. Luke 19, verse 1. He entered Jericho and was passing through, and behold, there was a man named Zacchaeus. you got to love Zacchaeus. I have to say this because I grew up in the church. A wee little man was he. You can always tell who got raised in the church. And he was a chief tax collector, and he was rich. He was loaded. He was, notice, seeking to see who Jesus was. But on account of the crowd, he could not because he was small in stature. So he ran ahead and he climbed up into a sycamore tree to see him. You see, what would happen in many cases is if I don't get a chance to see the person I'm after, I would just give up, not Zacchaeus, not this wee little man. He made a beeline up the sycamore tree. He was seeking after the Lord Jesus Christ. I remember I took a hike with a, a dear friend of mine. And as my memory 
if my memory serves me correctly, it is the most difficult hike I've ever been on my whole life. We were gone for uh, three days and two nights, and I remember hauling in the, the chili and all this stuff. I'm like, why in the world did I take all these canned goods? It was so heavy. And we got to the top. This, it, was, it was a massive incline, and we stayed for two nights in the mountains. I, I literally froze to death. Why did I go on this hiking trip? And all I could think of on the way down was one thing. All the way down. I wasn't thinking about anything. I had one thing on my mind. I need Pepsi. That's all I wanted. So all the way down, I was like, oh, 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 My buddy's like, we're going to make it. We're going to make it. I ended up drinking out of the, he's like, don't drink out of the river. You're, you're. I'll just use a Greek word. You're going to get diarrhea. <laughs> don't do it. I said, I, I don't care. I'm so thirsty. So I drank and drank and drank. And I was afraid the rest of the way, right? I was going to get that Greek word. We got to the bottom. We got in the car. And I'm just like, oh, I need a Pepsi. Finally, we went to the store. Oh, man. My parents taught me to never drink pop in church. So there you go. Enjoy it. You're an exception to the rule. So all I could think about was drinking this ice cold Pepsi. In a similar way, God is calling us to set our affection on heaven. He is calling us to remember that we've been raised with Christ to seek the things that are above. Verse 2 tells us something else. We are not only seek the things above, we are to set our minds on things that are above. The Greek term here means to to direct our mind or to seek after something and it involves intense concentration. We seek out the things of God. We seek out the heavenly things. And just as we learned about in this verb to set our minds on things above, we're called here. When we set our minds on things above, this is a command to be obeyed. This is written in the present tense. It is, it is a command that is persistent. Day after day after day, we set our minds on things that are above. Short Simply put, we as the followers of Jesus are to develop an eternal perspective. It was Harry Blameyers who wrote a book called The Christian Mind, a book that my uncle gave me over 20 years ago. And I think I've shared this story. He said to me, here's a book. It's called The Christian Mind by Harry Blameyers. If you're a real man, you'll read it. So I read it. And here's one of the first things I read. Blameyers says, a prime mark of the Christian mind is that it cultivates the eternal perspective. It was Jonathan Edwards in the 18th century who prayed this prayer to God. It's a great prayer. Oh God, stamp eternity on my eyeballs. May we pray that prayer with Edwards. We're setting our minds on things above means that our minds are preoccupied, literally consumed with the things that glorify God. It means that, that you and I have a, a heavenly perspective Here's an example. Paul says in Philippians 4, Finally, brothers, whatever's true, whatever's honorable, 
Whatever's just, whatever's pure, whatever's lovely, whatever's commendable, if there is any excellence, if there is anything worthy of praise, think, same word, about these things. When we respond reverently by seeking things that are above, setting our minds on things that are above, we are cultivating a thirst for heaven. Some of you are not very far away from heaven. And it's interesting, for those who are not very far away, here's what I've discovered. They're the ones looking the most forward to getting there. Have you learned that one? And so my heart and my passion this morning is that the the young people and the the young singles and the newly marrieds and those of you who are in your 20s and 30s and even your 40s, that you would become more like our senior adults who are close to crossing the finish line in reaching the the celestial city, that you would desire it, that you would long for it. I remember when I played baseball, almost every time I would pitch a game, I would pray the night before, Lord, if you're planning on returning, could you just delay it one extra day? This is a big, big game. I'm so ashamed of those prayers now. Nate, isn't that horrible? Did you pray that prayer as well, mate? Oh, good. I feel so much better. What is it about baseball? Oh, Lord, just to lay it over to a man getting married. Oh, Lord, just, just one day. One, I want to be with my wife one day. Well, what we need to learn is this. We need to set our attention on the things of God. We are called to set our minds on things that are above, not on things that are on this earth. It's so easy to get preoccupied with the world. It's so easy to get preoccupied with earthly things, with goals, with finances, with our portfolios, with the future, with our retirement. By investing large amounts of time in the little things and a little amount of time in the big things, the psalmist says, teach us to number our days that we may get a heart of wisdom. And so God is calling us to to thirst for him, to long for him and to Long for God means that we are longing for heaven. May I ask you this morning, are you longing for heaven? Are you longing for heaven? And what we will learn in the weeks to come is the view, and many of you will be challenged. I know I have been. The view we have of heaven is not the heaven that the scriptures proclaim. And so be prepared to get a little uncomfortable at first, but that uncomfort will turn into glory is you see what it truly means to reside on the new earth. So we affirm the reality and we respond reverently, but there's a final heading I want you to see, and that is found in verses 3 and 4. And that is that we are called to recognize the rationale. Verses 3 and 4, Paul says, For you have died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you will also appear with him in glory. What are the reasons for Paul's counsel? You have died and your life is hidden with Christ and God. Three things appear here. First, we are in vital union with Christ. That's why we recognize the rationale. We are in vital union with Christ. We have been crucified with Christ. It's no longer Dave Steele that lives, but Christ who lives within me. The life I live in the body, I live by faith in the Son of God who died and gave himself for me. Second, we are secure in our relationship 
with Christ. If I asked you to raise your hands, which I won't, if I asked you to raise your hands and said, how many of you have felt like, I'm not quite sure I'm a Christian. I I don't know about perseverance. I don't know about eternal security. My suspicion would be at least 90% would say, I've struggled with that sometime in our lives. That struggle should be eliminated right here and right now. For I am sure, Paul says, that neither death nor life nor angels nor rulers nor things present nor things to come nor powers nor height nor depth nor anything else in all of creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Nothing. Nothing will separate us from Christ. Third, we will appear, Paul says, with Christ in glory. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you will appear with him in glory. At the second coming of Christ, everything will become clear as we appear with him in glory. Here's the big question we close with. Is have you recalibrated your focus? Or do you need to recalibrate your focus? Have you adjusted your heavenly gaze And have you developed settled convictions that concern eternity? You remember Marion Jones, the amazing athlete that she was, got got duped, I'm convinced, by a trainer who convinced her that to take performance-enhancing drugs would jumpstart her career. And what it did is it cost her her career. What is it that's hindering you this morning from focusing intensely on on heaven are you developing settled convictions that concern eternity by reaffirming the reality of who you are in christ by responding reverently by seeking first the things that are above and setting your mind on earthly things and finally by recognizing the rationale that you are in vital union with christ that your relationship with god through christ is eternally secure and that one day you will appear with him in glory. Jonathan Edwards, who always challenges me and encourages me, said, it becomes to us to spend this life only as a journey toward heaven to which we should subordinate all other concerns in life. And then he says, why should we labor or set our hearts on anything else but that which is our proper end and true happiness. May God give us the ability as we begin this series to develop settled convictions that concern the hope of heaven. My goal in this series is that the youngest child and the most mature adult at the end of this series with two fists in the air, would say, I'm ready to go to heaven. Would that be a great goal? If as a church family, we say we are ready to go to heaven. May we lay aside every weight and the sin which clings so closely and run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith. Hebrews chapter 11, verses 1 and 2. May our hearts, may our minds, may our eyes, may our affections, may our hands and our feet be recalibrated so that we might focus 
on our heavenly home. And may heaven be the true longing of every heart here at Christ Fellowship. Let's pray. Thank you, Father, for the challenge from your word. Lord, this morning, uh, people are all over the map. There are some who are not yet believers. There are some who are not Christians. And so I pray today that the message of the gospel would shine loud and clear, that if there are non-believers here, that they would realize that a loving God created us to glorify him. And that he sent the Lord Jesus Christ to be the final payment for our sins. And that he died on a wooden cross. And on that cross, he paid for the price for the sins of every person who would ever believe. Granting us the promise that if we would turn from our sin and trust in Jesus, that we would have salvation. That we would have eternal life. There are others here, Lord, who are followers of Christ, but they're struggling because their eyes are set on the things of this world. I pray that as we study the word of God together, that you would cause them to focus intently on heaven. That you would cause them to focus intently on their Savior. And then there are those, Lord, likely more mature believers who are excited about heaven. I pray that as we study the word of God together, that their excitement would only grow that their excitement would, would escalate and that they would have a longing to be with their Savior in heaven for all eternity. Thank you once again for this hope that we enjoy. And what a privilege it was yesterday, even though we, we grieve to say goodbye to our friend, but we celebrate with Anton knowing that he is in heaven. We celebrate with his family. We think of all those who have gone to be with the Lord over the last several years. We We thank you for their faith. We thank you for their families and pray that you would draw near to them and encourage them. Strengthen them according to your grace. Now enable us to continue the worship as we sing this final song. In Jesus' name, amen.